listeners, let's get started. Uh, this is Jonathan and Rich uh, with it, Living in the Matrix. It's our podcast where we explore uh, really a, the- a dialogue about what it means to be a human being. And uh, we come at it from a frame that we believe we are in a simulation. I think that simulation is actually our mind uh, constructed AI that uh, is part of the body. We'll talk more about that later. But today we have a really cool subject. I'll get to that in a second. I first want to say, hey, if you've listened so far, thank you so much. We are having the time of our lives. Aren't we, Rich? This is so much fun. We got 25 people to listen from last week's episodes or total. Actually, no, it's uh, it's like 34 now. Amazing. Wow. Yes. So we are just trying to create a conversation. And one of the things I was going to say to you, Rich, as you were before we were started, is the reason why I like the Stoics so much is because they are interested in truth above their own self-perception. And I think that's a critical distinction in where Christianity has kind of gotten off board that it has forgotten truth at any level always comes at the sacrifice of my own ideas. And I I think collectively we have gotten into these places where we're too fragile and we're too stuck in a frame that we can't get out of. And the Stoics has, they push farther and say, keep going, keep going. Like you were talking about a reading about Marcus Aurelius. It's a search for truth. And that's really what this podcast is. That's what Neo was on is a search for truth. And that's all we're doing. But I'm going to hand it over to uh, Rich to kind of hand on or hand off the subject that we're going to talk today. And, uh, and really, you can also set up the frame as well. So go ahead. Thanks, Jonathan. And, you know, certainly, um, one of the things that, you know, we talk about is not necessarily even things that are you know, mainstream, they, they could be non-mainstream. We, we talk about ideas that I think um, are controversial. And I think that's gonna be definitely controversial today. Even the idea of universalism is one of those things where it goes beyond kind of our thing where we actually in our own broken selves, we feel like there needs to be a cosmic judge and executioner and that really bad people just need to go away, you know, in, in a way of sorts, but you know, one of the things we're always trying to do is grow with our mind, grow with our hearts. And I think one of the ways that's best expressed in this um, is in the use of psychedelics. And I don't know if we're going to have a free form kind of conversation today, but there's so many things on my mind that kind of either relate to the matrix or relate to our getting through this challenging world in a day-to-day scenario that I think we've expressed in ourselves. And I don't know if we want to have a framework for a question one, two, three, or four, I don't know if we all going to need to stop and re-edit it and <laughs> and create um, set, sets of questions, but the more we investigate um, the use of psychedelics, the more we see that they've been um, unfairly, um, you know, discriminated against over the the last let's say half century. Um, if you actually open up and start doing some research, you realize that the earliest examples of, for instance, LSD were very helpful in um, in Switzerland and in Europe mm-hmm. during the 50s and 60s. In fact, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you can argue 
that the I think his name is Bill Bright. I'm not forgive me if I'm wrong, but the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous actually took psilocybin, and it was or actually LSD. So one of the important things to realize is that even through all this negative, you've actually seen positive, right? So in the 50s, it was very clear that LSD was founded in a clinical setting. We're not talking random street drug here. We're talking about very specialized stuff. And in the 50s and 60s, amazing work was done with um, people in Europe in helping them with alcoholism and a variety of other maladies. Now, here's what's even crazier. The founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you can argue there is almost no secular um, group in the world that's done more powerful healing to a broken set of humanity than Alcoholics Anonymous, right? It is a 12-step program that has saved millions of lives, right? Um, mm -hmm. The founder, Bill W., uh, took LSD mm -hmm. and had such a profound experience that launched this whole program, even to the extent where one of the points of the 12-step program is believing in a higher power, and you mm -hmm. can call it whatever you want, but when, when you have an experience that you become one with you know, your creator and the universe, that's a powerful thing. And so you can't deny what happened in that regard. So what Guess who we took LSD with? What's that? Guess who he took LSD with? I don't know. Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley? Oh, yes. of course. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that so, wild? I mean, what a shocker. Yeah, the doors of perception, which which yeah. went on to, um, you know, when, when, he, when he wrote um, Brave New World, I mean, he literally had a view of the future. We talk about Brave New World in 1984, almost in um, like a two-volume set, right? You could bookend in, in the craziness we see today, mm -hmm. and the way the world is changing and moving. So, yeah. um, all right. So I guess one of the starting points for the podcast today is, are psychedelics valuable in our day-to-day -day life? Are they valuable in terms of um, being more creative? Are they valuable in terms of fighting off, let's say, depression and other mm -hmm. types of things? And maybe we can even talk about the difference between having a hero's dose, which is a large cons consumption of it, versus microdosing, which people take daily, if you would. Well, I think the cool thing about this is that you and I have, we're not coming to the table here with nothing. You and I both actually have a lot of research that we've done that, uh, like I'm consistently asking, it, how is it first medically valuable? Like, let's start there. Yes. Cause that's where most of these drugs started. MDMA started in the medical world through Merck, LSD, uh, psilocybin is huge historically within the Native American community. So it's like all of these constructs or peyote, actually, all of these ideas apply to the idea of me medicine. That's Correct. sort of the first frame, but also then where does that medicinal part take off and then it becomes experimental and then even recreational. But let's start in the medical side because there's a huge background of how it went from something that came out of the medical world, but then during the 60s, it became a schedule one drug for interesting reasons, which we can unpack. And now as a schedule one drug, all science has been backed off for 30 years. That's exactly. a problem to me. Yes. That's a problem. Okay? Well, I, I think unfortunately, and, and to address that, you're absolutely right. So let's talk about LSD, for instance, right? LSD came out of, I believe, Switzerland in the late 50s and early 60s. And mm -hmm. it was found by, based on something we, which we know as ergot, which was this rot found on rye. And for whatever reason, um, in detail, what they found was that it completely expanded the mind. And what they quickly found out was 
that was able to help people who are suffering from alcoholism and a variety of other maladies mm -hmm. in turning those around. And they were discovering that in the 60s when they were doing these. The, this Late, isn't like yesterday. Early 60s. It's important yeah. to realize that um, it was done clinically in the 50s and early 60s. And by the time Timothy Leary came along and started doing a lot of research at Harvard, that's when things started getting a lot more visibility. And I think what's important to realize is he helped it become a schedule one substance. And that's because he thought if this is so good for the small group of clinical patients, everybody should be able to tune in, turn on and drop out. And that's when you saw the Haight-Ashbury movement, right? Mm -hmm. so let's take a step back though, because when we talk about it medically, it cannot be underestimated how powerful yes. these experiences were. They were not, if you look at the footage of them, they're having- And you're not speaking from science. You're also speaking from experience, right? I've never done um, this version of acid. I've done half you've a done L You've done psilocybin though, right? I've done psilocybin. I have done psilocybin and LSD. Yeah. And I can validate your experience. That's all I wanted to say. Right. It's well, an extremely powerful drug. Yes. But to be fair, you know, my dad um, had a friend in college who jumped out of a window, right? Um, mm -hmm. When he was on acid and there are people been mm -hmm. burning their eyes out. And what right. we have to realize is there's a big difference between you know, what we see is ecstasy on the street with, um, uh, which is a, an adulteration of MDMA, as we're going to talk about. And we have some street versions of acid, right? Which are not the pure. Well, let's talk about the medicinal, the pharmaceutical version or the one yeah. that's created for purposes of helping. Yeah. And well, let me, let me go back. Cause I want to, I want to start historically first is, so I have a big, weird, strange background with the Manson family. Okay. When I was in college, uh, my school actually developed, I was a film major and my school actually developed the story of Charles Tex Watson, who was the right-hand man for Charles Manson and the Manson murders. Yep. So I had to look at their entire lives because I got to write this script. So that was my first sink in and connection to Charles Manson. Flash forward to last summer and the guy, there's a guy out there who spent, I wish I could remember his name. Um, and I'll look it up, but he spent 30 years following Manson. And Manson, believe it or not, was actually a CIA operative who was in the Hate Nashbury because he was a homeless, he had a huge, really bad background. And they grabbed him because he was keen and clever, but he was really malleable. Mm. And they turned him into an operative. And in that process, the book also talked about how the CIA's program of mind control, I can't remember the name of it, you might. Not MKUltra, MKUltra? Yes, it was MKUltra. Yes, MKUltra. They released 3 million doses of psilocybin as an experiment of how it operated. So when the whole explosion within the Bay Area happened, it was all funded by CIA. Right. Because there you you have to have distribution channels in order for an explosion like that to happen. And it didn't come from the local pharmacy. It came up through the ground through the CIA. This is all documented. This is all part of that process. It's all been shown. And it's interesting the Leary component that you bring in because the book talks about how Timothy Leary went too far. Why do you think he got it scheduled one? Because he wanted it to be established that? Did you do you know? I, I don't think he did it for bad purposes there are people who are into peace and joy and love mm -hmm. and um a variety of 
of freedom and expression for the sake of creativity and freedom. Yes. Right? He, I, he's he's brilliant actually in in the politics of ecstasy, which is a collection of some of his stories. And I saw mm -hmm. an article he was being interviewed by Playboy, and he talks about when you can look at yourself from a cellular level. You're literally looking at yourself outside of yourself, and you almost have a sense of horror as I'm seeing myself yes. as a pure set of you know, molecules and, and subatomic particles, and then yes. built back into flesh. And but he talks about the egolessness of, of orgasm and things like that. But what I'm getting at is I think he was so open to all this and and, and mass um, exploration that it, it it allowed in some of these terrible experiences where people really were dying and getting hurt. And I don't think he 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 wanted the bad stuff to happen. He just that he felt like, hey, what to what to do when the Viet Cong put acid in the water supply? There's an actual article. Yes. That he, writes. he goes, just enjoy the ride, right? And right. and for most of us um, who have parents, or we we've, we've been seeing what we saw in the past, where it's like, like, oh my God, people are freaking out and jumping off buildings and burning their right. eyes out, and 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 sitting in a, in a in a bunch of jelly, you know, for 12 hours, having the worst experience of their lives. We have to realize that. Those are again, um, those are adulterations of what happened or they weren't prepared for it in the right way. So I think it's important we look from a medical standpoint, Jonathan, that in the earliest days and what we're actually seeing even now today, if it's done in a, in a, in a controlled environment, in a good setting, um, the actual benefits are, 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 are high. And we, we can go into those details. Let's hold that. Let's hold yeah. that because I think that's the, the second half of the arc. Yeah. The reason why I bring up Timothy Leary is because that's sort of the crux and what the CIA did. The CIA actually at the same time was experimenting with methamphetamine. Mm. They were counterbalancing. They considered LSD and, and methamphetamine the exact opposites because what they wanted to do is see its effect. And the methamphetamine was a huge part of the Manson family when they would do murders. Of course. That's what they were doing with Charles. They were saying, okay, we're going to give you LSD to control. Into They were using the uh, amphetamines to use them for chaos because they were considered the opposite. And, uh, and Charles became the scapegoat to get them to say, here, this is why we need to include this as schedule one. Schedule one closes it down. Now, here's what it does. On a meta-narrative perspective, the church was the first one on the bandwagon. This is something is a no-go. And then all science in it started closing down. Right. That to me was the problem, is we closed the science. Truth will continue down that road. And I think that's one of the problems that we encountered is my entire growing up, you don't ever touch drugs. Right. Ever. Oh, it was the, that was my household. Right. And so when I got to college and all of a sudden I started with uh, marijuana, that's sort of the easiest and most accessible. At Viola? Oh, hell yeah. Oh my God. Oh, I was wow. the party house. We were the party house. Oh my goodness. Yes. I my first amazing. LSD experience was there. I actually, I, I, this is a funny story. The very first time I, when I first took, no, this was my second time. My first time I took it was at a club, at a rave. And the second time I took it, all my friends were having a party. We says, well, let's get LSD. And we used it. And I took it at five o'clock and I had one more night class and we all took it together and we were all in the class and we went to the class and it, I came on 
And all of a sudden, okay, this is a Bible class, believe it or not. I feel really bad about it. No, I don't feel bad about it. It was my experience. But I sat there and the teacher goes, okay, flash quiz. He did that once a month and you never knew which week it was. And I'm freaking out because as I got the bubble test, you had to write your name at the top and then you had to fill in the bubbles. I couldn't write my name. And so the entire time I'm sitting there, I'm going, oh my God, if he sees this card, he's going to know I'm on LSD. So I kind of had a little panic attack in the middle of the class. Yes. And that's the problem is when you get on a wave, you go on the wave. But also you think you've got this paranoia of everybody can see you that you- Oh, totally. Everybody can tell. You're in it, right? Right. Everybody knows you're in it. And then- And then thankfully he goes, you know what? I'm going to be a good teacher. And he says, you can throw this one out. And so we all bolted and left. And that, that night, someday I'll share that night. It ended up becoming sort of my dark night of the soul. Uh, And I did go into psychosis. We will talk about that later. So it was a learning experience that this drug is very, very powerful. But what I think is should be like shit is a bad word. What I think is a must is that we need the risk encouraged to start listening and learning from this because the research is beginning now to show it works. And I'll give you the one that's the most intriguing to me is the one that was, um, it's the randomized clinical trial. Let me see. It was, uh, let's see. Was it a Johns Hopkins study? Uh, I don't know. It was the largest double-blind placebo-controlled phase three study. And they said um, on it, those with severe case of PTSD saw immediate release in 67% of the participants. In the placebo group, that was only 32%. 67% of people, think of the war veterans coming back from war Afghanistan uh, any kind of military activity where you kill someone that that's PTSD. Of course. And you don't know how to deal with that. That's the thing. I think the first. So, so, so it's it too. It, it, it hits you and then you bury it. Right. Yes. So why does it flare up again and again and again? And what you're onto something right now is mm-hmm. why this has become so popular and so powerful is that one of these very powerful experiences on psilocybin or on on acid or another kinds of maybe DMT is so powerful because what they actually end up seeing is their biggest fear and they can actually overcome it. And they have such an overwhelming experience. Of if being, the set and setting uh, is right. Correct. Yeah. And, and again, most of these PTSD um, psychedelic experiments are very clinical, right? They're done very, um, very, very yes. um, with, with a lot of supervision and they're massive doses too. That's another reason why they're under supervision. But the, what they come out of this is, is they say, I've gotten more out of one experience with this substance than I have over years of therapy, right? Yes. And I think- Because one- what, the, what the therapist cannot do is turn off the prefrontal cortex or the default right. mode network. That's right. They cannot do that. A therapist can only lead you to do it. And that was the difference. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Or, or actually say, let's dive into it now, because this is the crux of the argument for me. Mental, we are, I believe, in a mental health age. 
we're starting to become comfortable with the idea that we have mental health issues. They're not stigmatized like when we were kids. Right. When you and I were young, mental health was you were a cuckoo. You were, you were in the funny farm. They actually had funny farms. They actually had mental health institutions where people were banging their head up against the wall. That was our impression. If you had mental health problems, you were insane. Yeah. Charles Manson was insane as an example. And so everybody was stigmatized against it. And I think what's happening now is that lid is being just blown off to say, okay, we're comfortable enough to declare I've got mental health issues. Science is now realizing that a lot of your issues are stuck in how your brain operates. And now we're discovering what's called the default mode network, which is the, it's a, it's a system of five parts of your brain. I was looking this up today right. that work together to construct primarily your identity, your value, and your safety. Those are your three things that it does. And the value and your uh, safety are kind of very closely related because they're about the same thing. Okay. And, um, the Michael Pollan, the author, dug pretty deep into it. He's one of the first people I knew that published about it and said, when you turn off the default mode network, your brain can then process the unresolved negative stored energies inherent in trauma. And when you use any kind of psychedelic plant medicine, it's not just a drug, it's a plant medicine. It, the context needs to be changed. Yep. People go from years of therapy to one or two sessions. That is undeniable evidence. And it's happening with extreme recurrence. When you're getting 67% in your control group, that is extremely powerful. You cannot ignore that. And so that's the frame that I come at it with is, for me, this is about how do we heal people? And if psychedelics are of, I don't care if you're a Christian, I don't care if you're not a Christian, that background completely changed for me because we have zero problem taking Oxycontin because yeah. our doctor prescribed it. Yeah. But we're not allowed to take LSD or MDMA or psilocybin because God provided it. I don't get it. It just doesn't jive with me because one produces better than the other. One is more likely to create addiction. The other is more likely to create restoration. So that's the con that's the frame that I bring this whole conversation to the table. Yeah. And just to add to that, um, it's important to realize that it's not just PTSD, it's anxiety, it's depression. Um, a very similar yes. study with psilocybin done at Johns Hopkins um, dealt with uh, a number of uh, cancer patients that were basically uh, on their death, on their last legs. Yes. And um, they took a hero's dose, if you would, and they lost- What is a hero's dose for those who don't know? Probably five grams at least yeah. of, of psilocybin, um, yes. so, you know- you know, one to two is kind of along the lines of where you start to kind of start to see a little things, wavy lines, three, right. a lot more movement and four and five is where the ego starts to dissolve, right? Yeah. Just like we're talking about the default mode network is, is, is limited now and pure expression. But again, similarly with LSD and DMT, you've got this oneness uh, and, and, a, and a strong piece. There was a lot of agnostics or even atheists. And that's almost universal. 
Yes. Oh, yes. There was there was a person who was an atheist, but who could not deny that what they experienced yes. was something as close to a creator as possible, and they lost their fear of death. Now, that's something we can talk about a little bit later on when we talk about a, a controversial study um, in a book called The Immortality Key. Okay, and let's just dive in because we're there. Go you ahead. Want to dive into that. Yes. So, you know, ironically, here we are talking about Good Friday, um, and one of my friends who um, I was you know, close to up in the Sacramento area. Um, we were part of a group, a lot of post-Christian, you know, folks who had one time been fully involved in church. I was still, you know, believer. I still love Jesus and, and the resurrection right. and things like that. And a lot of these other folks were like, no, I'm more agnostic where I've just given up. You know, one of our colleagues who unfortunately um, ended up killing himself last year, um, you know, with a, a second serious dose of he actually had bipolar disorder, right? So we haven't expressed that out. But this guy who's explored all kinds of things from meditation to psychedelics and, and, and a variety of other things recommended this book to me. And the premise of the book, Jonathan, is that the mysteries of Eleusius, which took place between 1500 BC and around 400 um, AD, um, before they were destroyed by um, the powerful emperors that were Christianized at the time, allowed a group of people to partake in what is now being uh, actually accurately identified as psychedelics through mm -hmm. spectrometers and um, looking at yeah. some of these cups that were consumed in them you have the remnants it's like you'd find dna evidence of of, of fossils and, and dinosaurs and and in humans you actually have these you know probably isotopes or other types of ingredients that were found in these things including barley pennyroyal acid-like things from ergot and very likely psilocybin. And here's the interesting thing. When they went through these mysteries, they came out of them profoundly changed. And there was the penalty of death. If anybody were to expose these mysteries, they would be killed. Right. Now, guess who went through these mysteries um, before Jesus came along? Um, Marcus Aurelius. Actually, Marcus Aurelius was actually post-Jesus, um, I believe. He's mm -hmm. Yeah, he was actually helping conquer um, Germania, if you remember in the, in the movie Gladiator. But what the um, what the premise was is that these mysteries of Eleusius and the Greeks were transferred over to the early Christians. So when they partook of the Eucharist, they had these same kinds of psychedelic experiences and had their oneness with the creator. And guess what they also did in the meantime? They lost their fear of death, just like mm -hmm. our friends at Johns Hopkins University did. And that's what the author of The Immortality Key brings up in the very first part of his book. He brings that construct of psilocybin helping people out, finding that place of, of oneness with God and the cosmos, getting a sense of peace because their ego was destroyed. The default mo mode network was 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 pushed aside and they yeah. saw what pure creativity and love looks like. And yeah, they experienced it. That's exactly right. You can't yeah. take it away from them. Think about this. You're facing- no, let me, let me Let me jump yeah. in here really quick because yeah. I think this is an important thing that I'm learning. Okay. Here's how I'm understanding how the brain learns. For those who don't know, I'm in user experience for a software company. And my job is actually studying how people learn so we can create adoption for software products. And what I'm learning is I'm diving into a lot of neuroscience that your body learns best when it's connected both the head and the heart. So you see a vision of something. In this case, you it can be anything you see but when you feel it too, you have a much greater established 
construct of it. Because what the feeling does is it validates the vision in your head. And I think that's one of the powers of these drugs is they create an undeniable feeling of oneness or love that is in no way communicated or possible to communicate because you can't, although I, I'm beginning to question this, you, you're, the drug gives you the feeling of what you're thinking. You see love in your head, but because you feel it, it becomes overwhelming. That's interesting. And I think that's what it does is most people operate either from one, the head or the heart. We talked about this last week, the two weeks ago, the men operate primarily from the head and the heart. What the, what the psilocybin does is it actually opens up both pathways. So you getting a, an experience, because that's the thing, when the very first time I ever took it, I had some of the most profound experiences of oneness and love. Like I remember I spent almost an hour at the end. It was, I took it at, at two o'clock in the morning at a rave and I stayed up all night enjoying the rush. And at the end of the night, I went to McDonald's in the middle of LA and talked to this homeless guy for like 30 minutes. And I remember having this deep sense of love and connection to this homeless person. Wow. That was undeniable. Of and course. that wasn't just in a mental ascent. It's a full body experience that becomes undeniable because of that. Like you were, you shared with me earlier about your red rock experience. It's like, you, you can't help but see it, but also feel it. And that congruence between the two becomes how we learn better. That's where learning takes place in a much more, and, and I think that's what the psychedelics do is they turn off a default mode network so that you can get out of your beta brain and move into either a gamma, which is high critical thought. It's not stuck. Beta is stuck. Gamma is not, or down to alpha and theta, which you're much more at peace. Right. And that is where we learn. And so that, that was critical for me is understanding. It's not just a mental ascent. It's a full body experience of learning. And I think that's what we're now understanding with the science as they go through these, these people are getting over death. Like there's no tomorrow. Like it turned off, like and, and, it yeah, turned but, off. Yeah. As opposed to a gradual, like when, like I, we, our my organization, we're we're selling coaching, digital coaching to enterprises, not just to the executives. We're not talking athletic coaches. We're talking performance-based coaches that help you grow as an individual person and help mm -hmm. you grow as a professional, as a leader, if you would. But those are behavioral iterative changes that you can look back on, and you have this coach to help you reinforce that. What's so powerful about psychedelics is that experience because you are kind of one with the cosmos. You have something that's objective that you know and you feel is true, right? This mm -hmm. is exactly what you're talking about. You, yep. you, your head is experiencing it. The brain is processing it. But in your heart, you're actually feeling that as a sense of truth that you know in your gut. And yes. that's why you can't take it away. And I think this is, again, why we saw such growth um, in the early Christians that were facing terrible persecution and death. And in fact, we talked about at the beginning, Quo Vadis, where Peter Ustinov playing um, Nero laments the fact that these Christians are smiling as they're getting mauled by lions in the, right. in the, in the pit, right? Powerful stuff. I, I, but here's the distinction I want to make is it, 
we don't want to construe out of this that they were on any kind of psychedelic. I think what the psychedelic opens us up to is the energetic state that is connection. We feel that connection so much so that it can override our ego and say, no, I am connected. I am part of something. And that stays long after. I would say that the, the most defining events of my life have come on some form of psychedelic. Yeah. Like where there was an immense radical shift in my life because when I felt love with that homeless man, I was like, this is how life is supposed to be. Yeah. And then I when I came off, to- that experience of love stayed with me for. I think we do need to flesh out the difference at another uh, occasion, though, that MDMA works differently than, let's say, psilocybin in terms of how those serotonin you're tapped into and how you do have this sense of other. Yes. Powerful. But going back, what what, what I was thinking of by that memory, let's say those early Christians facing, you know, I mean, even the early apostles, perhaps facing death. It wasn't because they were on it. It's because they knew at one moment in time that they actually found it. This is what Paul, I yes. think, experienced in when yes. he saw the third heaven. He had a thorn in his side, according that said, and, and Jesus said, my, my grace is sufficient for you. But he always had this memory of that thorn in his side was almost a physical indicator of, baby, you've just seen what glory and, and, and paradise looks like. And I've got this thorn in your side there. But imagine if you would... They say olfactory is the greatest um, memory enhancer. So imagine you remember when you went on. What is um, olfactory? Olfactory is your nose, right? Oh, okay. You're, you're, that, that's when you smell. So th- they say that your sense of smell is the strongest sense that sparks memory. And you could actually smell that. the perfume that your, your wife first yep. wore on your first date 20 years back. And she doesn't wear it anymore. And you smell it and you get this okay. smile on your face and you realize yeah. that you were that that, that 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 how it made you feel right so you have a memory and then you have a trigger of of why that was important and that's just another small example uh, i want to i'm going to dovetail here because i think this is relevant because we're talking about the disciples and jesus and the possibility what was the name of the book for the readers what was the the immortality key the immortality key. who wrote it his name is um, I believe it's Murkescu. Um, his name is Brian Mura Rescue. Um, and yeah. this guy was actually trained in the antiquities, but he ended up becoming a lawyer. So what's amazing about him and his journey is he has all this background in ancient languages like Sanskrit and Hebrew right. and Greek and the, and the classics, but he ended up um, because he probably wasn't going to make any money, end up getting a law degree. And so his mind works in a very logical right. framework. And here's what's even better about this author, outside of the fact he's been on with Jordan Peterson and um, Joe Rogan, he's never taken psychedelics. So he actually yeah. objectively is is searching this out and looking at the all the okay, clues. Let, let me dovetail on it because this is perfect. You gave me a perfect segue. Great. Is, um two things that I want to set this up with. First is, have you ever heard of the theory that the burning bush is actually an acacia bush that releases DMT? I have not heard that. Yes. Think about it. If you've ever had a psychedelic experience, what you're experiencing is the energetic vibration that moves your visual image in multiple planes. So it looks like it's moving. Okay. 
Got it. That same idea, if you add color and light to that, looks like a burning bush. I'm not saying that's what it was. I'm saying that's the theory. Okay. But I think it's a brilliant theory. That's point one. Point okay. two is, and you know this, but I'm sharing this for our listeners, is your brain includes your pituitary gland. And your pituitary gland has DMT in it. Of course it does. So you have the capacity to release a psychoactive psychedelic resource already within your brain. And that's why I said, you don't actually need a psychedelic to experience those states. You just have to figure out how to release it within yourself. Good point. Well, interestingly enough, the arc was made of acacia wood. So maybe that explains a lot too. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. We should do an experiment to see if we can get it to release. <laughs> exactly. But imagine a burning bush sounds like a psychedelic experience of a tree that it, when you're on a psychedelic experience, it's wild because it looks like it's alive. And I'm not saying I, I, I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm saying it's a really interesting possibility. And I think as we move forward, we've got to uh, really begin looking at the efficacy of these in a controlled environment. Like there's, there's medical use and then there's experimentation for learning. Those are kind of different purposes. One is sort of the philosopher approach and one is the uh, medicinal. I'm in both of those categories. Like right. I want to use psychedelics for the medicinal, for my own restoration, my own growth. If I can accelerate my growth, I absolutely want to, but I also want to, and that's where my experiment side comes in, that it's not a control, a controlled legal substance yet, although it is in a few small places Been decriminalized in, in, in Colorado, et cetera. Yeah. Yes. But then there's recreational use. And I think that borderline between experiment and recreation is a very important border because these are not these are not recreational drugs no they're not no you can but they're they they have because they work with the mind they have a very powerful reaction that can lead to temporary psychosis and this is where I want to jump in with my story is that night when we took LSD, I went in uh, at the end of that night, I went into a state of psychosis that lasted about, it was essentially the equivalent is imagine a state of severe depression for three months, because I thought I had the thought I was, we were watching the movie Altered States. So for oh, me, yes, I know. I, we, and I picked it out. I oh. picked it out. And there's a scene where William Hurt is having sex with his girlfriend because he's, it's his, it's his experiment with reality in the movie. And he has this picture where he's having sex with uh, his girlfriend. And there's a picture of a goat's head and a pentagram. And instantly I thought I had committed an unforgivable sin. Wow. Okay. Cause that was my historical Christian background. And I constructed the worst case scenario in my life. And, and in that moment, it wasn't that it was true, but I'll tell you, my body told me it was true because I could feel the weight of that thought. And I went into a depression for three months 
And really that depression created the necessity for me to begin the journey of how do I heal my own heart? And that's what I've been on the study of for the last 30, actually that happened when I was 23. I know, uh, yeah, 23. And it, and it shattered my life, but it sent it in a really good direction. And I think that's the thing that I don't think we, and I can say this unequivocally, I'm not advocating for recreational use. Mm-hmm. at all. I don't think you are either, right? Not either. No, I haven't right. taken ketamine with snorting it at a party. I, I've right. taken ketamine because I want to go into that brain of mine, pull apart the fog and you know do a reset yes. and look at, look at all the viruses on a hard drive and cut, cut through them and tap into some more creative processes. Exactly. Okay. So you and I both are have been through a medically resp- uh, a medically supervised ketamine treatment. Yep. yep. Okay. You had a much better experience than I did because, to my own, I did not do it correctly. Uh, my set and setting were not in any way conducive to ketamine. I and I stopped doing it after twelve sessions. You had a much different experience. Why don't you describe yours? Because yours actually was much more productive. Yeah, well, one of the things I was surprised um, when I heard how you did it is you took it and would walk your dog and would be out in the open and walking. Do not recommend this. Perhaps interacting with people. And um, very clearly, I was told this is more of an introspective process. So what you would do is you get yourself in a very comfortable environment, either sitting down or, um, you know, with comfortable pillows. And the idea is to, to put in headsets and blind your eyes so that you can focus on a particular type of music, which doesn't involve lyrics, more like a, you know, gentle chant or some binaural or kind of those frequencies that are supposed to be in maybe evolving Tibetan, you know, the, the, the rings and the bowls. Yes. Ways to tap into things. And I started looking at some research. The bottom line is Jonathan, as I think what, um, what didn't happen for you is, when you close your eyes and you listen to the, these types, they accentuate the experience, all of that mm-hmm. isolation. And just like William Hurt had and the deprivation, right? He was in a deprivation tank yeah, right? where he was um, on the substances, but obviously enclosed and in, 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 in a very almost neutral setting of just floating this. And what I found was lots of experiences of cosmic expression um, either me having creation at my fingertips in some very um, manic and special states. I've, I've described to you being Luke Skywalker in the, like the cockpit of the Millennium right. Falcon blasting TIE fighters or being Mac- Matthew McConaughey in the singularity as he's going towards um, that big uh, Miller's planet and being able to rescue things. And also feeling um, sense of wanting to send love and, and healing to my family and having cosmic unity, if you would, and, and love. And so I, I will say that I've had those experiences. I did have one experience where um, I, I don't what know What would why you say was your best experience? Um, it was when I was downstairs. Um, I'd listened to a brand new track. One of the things that I don't recommend is having a bunch of different music that spins you in different directions. I had I found a playlist that lasted two hours. And again, the experience you're supposed to swallow. You and I did it in a different way than some other folks have done it. So to, to, to help the audience here, a lot of um, professional settings are you, you're lying down, you go to a center and you're out for a while because it's an IV and it's very expensive. It's 600, 800 bucks a pop, 
where you and I went and we did a consultation for 250 bucks and then you got you know, a month's supply for let's say $80. And again, you take these orally, they dissolve in your mouth and you're supposed to swoosh it around for as long as you possibly can. It starts to kick in after 15 minutes, but if you can hold 30 to 45 minutes, it's going to exacerbate that experience. And so um, I think my most profound experience was, um, I, I was, it was actually late at night, it was 10 o'clock, I couldn't sleep. I went downstairs. It was in a good environment. I was comfortable. I had a brand new play set that didn't, that kept kind of repeating the same kinds of great music. And that's when I had that feeling of adulation, right? Where I'm soaring in the cosmos and feeling that. And sometimes you're actually having visions and like I'm, you're seeing these things. And sometimes it's fractal. You're almost saying, okay, here's my brain and I'm cutting through it, right? Here's the fractal kind of patterns I'm seeing. Right. But I wouldn't say because it's not a psychedelic truly, it's 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 horse tranquilizer for heaven's sake. And so, but it could be dissociative in that you can still lose the ego and, and get rid of that default mode network. Call it for whatever reason that was set aside. And that's why I think it's been helpful for um, depression and anxiety. But to realize that I felt a, a pure creative expression going on. And I would love to be able to replicate that. And I haven't been able to do so in, for a while. See, I have, so my ketamine experience is, I sabotage my own experience. I, I, I was struggling to find the right set and setting. And uh, so I want to definitely try it again. And did you experience what's called a K-hole? So for the listeners, a K-hole is where you almost reach complete disassociation. Did you get there? On my last time, I actually did it. I had, um, I think the biggest uh, reason why it happened was, a, I've been doing intermittent fasting, um, thanks to you, uh, <laughs> getting better at it. But I was, I, I had no food, nothing in me. I took a full dose of it. And what I did before I actually did it, I was, I had it in my mouth for longer than ever because I was watching a fringe episode called Black Blotter, which is, of course, um, Walter Bishop taking a very special- Talk about a setup to your own brain. Oh my God. You know, this is the point of the entire- show a fringe of how you find the person that's going to help you save the entire universe. Right? right. And so he needed to come up with a password. And so I'm watching this because I had to wait for my daughter to get home. I didn't want to be in a, in a strange state, like, and be out of it completely. So I'm still holding this in, waiting for her to come home, watching the show so I could finally swallow and then sink into it. And what the craziest experience was, was that I literally got up out of my room walked, saw her, said hi, had cognitive, uh, but cogent conversation with her, talking right. about her night, saying goodnight. I went back to my room thinking, wow, this thing is over so fast. You know, it's only been an hour. I laid back down. I saw the fan that I'm looking at your fan right there. And I saw a shadow of the fan because of the light coming off of the, the glow light. And it kept expanding. And I realized that it wasn't going away. I couldn't feel myself actually in, in the present. I literally thought I was trapped at an illusion of the fan and the shadow again and again and again. Fortunately, because my God, I'm lucky how my God, God has wired my brain. I said, I'm just gonna ride this out. I, I might be unconscious. I might be like dead in a, in a, in a, in a gutter. I'm, I don't care. I could be in a coma someplace. I'm just going to ride this thing out. And then over the course of the next 20, 30 minutes, it, it let off and I could feel my toes and wiggle around right. again. I was back, but it was a little scary for a few moments. 
I, yeah, I never got to the K hole. I always got to the point almost like where visually uh, <laughs> the, the K hole starts is almost like your vision closes down. I always had coherence of there's still a street. There's still the walkway. It never completely closed on me also because I didn't take the same dose. You actually took twice as much as I did. Um, and even learning how to take it is a little bit of an arduous task. Like you have to swish it around your mouth for 30 to 45 minutes to create the best efficacy and experience. So it wasn't it's that. fun, right? Because sometimes you're wondering, right. I, is it coming out of my mouth? Is your mind and body, you start to the anesthesia kicks in, right? You, you, is it still there? Is it time? Right. So I think what's important to realize is if people are interested in taking this to expand their mind or to fight depression or anxiety, that if, if you're in a really bad place, it's probably recommended that's more supervised, but we, we, we did it in a place where, and I got a few left over, by the way, I got the 300 milligram dosage. So next time we get together, we, maybe we punch out a, a weekend and uh, we, we have a little session together. <laughs> Sounds like a very good idea. Um, and it really comes down to part of the thing that I've looked at is there are different types of experiences here. They're, they're not all one category. They are all plant medicines, except for LSD. But it's a sense of like, I had never even heard about Ibogaine, but there's sort of the psychedelic group, which is LSD, peyote, uh, marijuana, uh, marijuana is not truly psychedelic, psilocybin, ayahuasca, uh, and then DMT and ayahuasca. There's that group where you're visually seeing impaired differences. Then there's the physical ones because like uh, ketamine is really just a drug that knocks you out. Correct. It's an but it does affect your brain in the same way as like MDMA and that it's creating much more of a, it's a different dopamine. It's serotonin. Like I found MDMA, which by the way, is actually scheduled to be legal for medical purposes within 2023. That was something I just found out. And mm-hmm. psilocybin by 2024, that's the Biden administration. So there's the, um, and I think MDMA is one of the most powerful because it has its controlled side effects that aren't like LSD. Like you can't go psychotic on MDMA. It's much more of a physical problem that you can go dehydrated. That's really the biggest issue with like keep drinking water because what people do when they get on on serotonin is they start dancing. That's why it's a dance club drug, a drug. That's why it was like when we were in the raves and we would take MDMA, it was you just wanted to move because there was so much energy inside of you and you kept going. Are you sure you were taking pure MDMA though as well? Because it, when they- Back then I do. Speed, I, yeah, when it's ecstasy, it was more of the street drug versus the right. clinical version of it. Yeah, And that's when people also got in trouble because they got maybe, if it was laced with kind of meth and, and other kinds of substances, speed, if you would, um, that's when I think people got in more trouble and you watch them, you know, you know, fall over and, and dehydrated and actually um, heat exhaustion. Right. Yeah, they hospital. would go to the clubs and dance for four hours and they fall over and have to go to the hospital because they weren't drinking anything. And that's like the biggest risk in MDMA is you're just going to de- go dehydrated because yeah. you're getting so much activity. The serotonin overwhelmed me. Like that was the interesting part about it is the experience of the drug is that it physiologically does change your experience of reality. And when you're flooded with serotonin, we we were four hyper-masculine guys living in the Fiji house at USC as an apartment building. And we were all doing it together. And we were all going, oh my God, dude, I love you so much. 
Like these are four like really masculine guys just becoming like best friends. Brotherly bonding. Yeah. Yeah. It's not as experiential as LSD because I think the physiological oneness that comes from LSD is much more physical and much more lasting. When we came down from that, we felt it, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same level as LSD. And I think that's the thing. That's the other side of the whole equation of, of why we should keep going down this road in the search for truth is because how can we best create the models that allow people to get healed? And I think these work better than therapy. They work better than, uh, than the, uh, pharmaceutical industry drugs. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's not even an equation anybody has to argue anymore. It's and an that's entire conversation just dedicated to this separation from the pharma, big pharma, because it's, yes. like, it's like dialysis. It's like, hey, how can we keep this person, um, you know, totally, you right. know, controlled for the rest of their adult lives, right? And that's something we're trying to overcome. And going back, I think it's important to also let our audience know that. I'm not all willy-nilly just to just drop this left and right. One of the things that Alan Watts said, he, Alan Watts, you and I love him to death. Just want, he, he, I think he was a guru. I think he was an avatar. The man yeah. read so much, knew so much, and expressed so much amazing knowledge to the world. Died too young, but he only did it once. He did the, the I think it was called the LSD-25, whatever you call it. And the analogy he used was he, he saw cosmos. He was one with, with creation. He felt really <laughs> powerful, but he used the analogy that, if you're if you're if you're, if you're sitting by the phone and the divine calls you and picks it up, you get the message and then you can hang up that phone. Meaning, like I was good. He had it that one time, right? And I think what's important about the second the psilocybin experience with these people who had never taken it before, they really needed never needed to take it again. And so I think it's fair to say moderation. Use it in clinical settings. We're not talking about. I mean. I, I don't, obviously don't have a problem with 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 talking about shrooms here and there. And maybe there's something to be said for this for the microdosing where you're taking 200 milligrams a day, then off for a weekend. But mm-hmm. going back, when you think about the Native Americans and how they went through their warrior um, phase, they they had this experience of some kind of vision in a, in a sweat lodge, and yeah. it, it became men, and they overcame just like Luke Skywalker did in um, Dagobah down into the recesses of the earth. He saw himself in the Darth Vader mask that he took out, right? These warriors did what Joseph Campbell called the hero's journey, where they have to go through some cliff and some dark, scary place. And maybe that was partly what you went through when you had your psychosis. And so you come out of it though, as the man that you're supposed to be in these tribes, but Unless you were trying to find a vision, if you had some dreams or something like if you watch the movie Yellowstone, um, you know, one of the main characters starts having this dream and he goes, okay, you need to have a, a, you need to have a, a psychedelic experience to, to find out which direction to go in. Yes. Used very rarely, I would say, to get wisdom, you know, from from the plant. Well, it's the it's the ultimate can opener. Right. Because you don't get to choose to not turn off your brain when you do it yeah so it's like it just it it pries open the problem is and this is where i link back to my psychosis is in that moment i was having you know we can't determine our thoughts 
but we can control our thoughts. We can become the watcher and say, no, that's the, the mind operating. That's not me. Okay. In that moment, I had no clue at how to do that. Now I do. And in that moment, I didn't, my whole entire life was being challenged because here I had found myself in a place where God could not rescue me. Yes. I had committed an unforgivable sin yes. and I was stuck. I was on earth then uh, living out the rest of my days, waiting to go to hell. Yeah. That was the psychosis that I was in. Yeah. Okay. And I felt it to the bones in my body. Yeah. So I was in this complete state of anxiety and depression mixture because I, I was fucking seriously afraid of the future and I was lamenting what had happened to me. And where was I not? I was not in the now. I was not present ever in those moments. For 90 days, I lived in an extreme state of survival where if I could get up, I was lucky. There were days where I just, like I would, every single night, I would um, have a dream that I was on Lombard Street. So for those of you who don't know, it's in San Francisco. It's the windiest street in the world or in the United States. And he was driving. I was in a limo. And my driver was a demon and he was driving forwards, but looking backwards and laughing at me with an evil clown smile. That my was my God. dream for 90 days. Ugh. Okay. Like I had constructed my worst case scenario to get out of. I'm going to bring this full circle and realize now I was living in the matrix and I constructed, you and I talked about this. Part of the matrix is, is that it's an escape room. Mm -hmm. And I think psychedelics and these plant medicines are the key to escaping the escape room. Because I put myself in that two weeks ago when we talked to Sean, we talked about you construct, I thought about this, we construct our own scenarios to challenge ourselves. And we do it subconsciously. We put ourselves in positions that happen. That's the way reality works so that we can discover what we're capable of. So my yeah. full arc, my entire life has been getting over that one event. And now this summer, I realized I'm, I'm a decade removed from the, the trauma, the triggered traumas. I no longer have those triggers anymore. They don't trigger me in any way. Yeah, And I realized that's my arc. I've come to the place where I now understand that moment for what it was actually was, is that was me trying to understand my dad's divorce from my mom to be fatherless means I, and I put myself in the place where I, God could not rescue me mm -hmm. so that I had to find my way out of that hell. Yes. Okay. Call it the hero's journey. Well, yes. This is a. I'll, I'll dump one more on you. Is we talked about. Um, we talked about Dr. Hawkins' consciousness model. It's a progression from hell, from death is at the bottom at zero. Then it's shame, and then shame. guilt. Guilt. Shame is like thirty, and I think guilt is like eighty, and then courage is tw is two hundred. Yep. And as we pass courage we get to logic. Logic is 400. And I think this is where most men get stuck. We get stuck in logic. Okay. In order to reach beyond 400 of logic, the next level up is love, which is at 500. I think this is why when a man and a woman come together, 
What does the woman have the capability? She has the energy. Art. The love is in the energy. Yep. And that pulls us through logic into the unknown of love. And I think that's what happened to me is at the end of the day, I saw my the love of my parents to pull me out and ask, did I want to take that first courageous step to believe there was something other than what I was experiencing at every second of my life? Because literally in those 90 days, it lasted about 90 days until I really came out of my depression because I couldn't even leave my parents' side. But the goal was to get first to courage to say, okay, I'm going to choose to believe what I see is not real. Even anger, right? Fe fe uh, um, fe uh, pride and anger. Pride is 170. They're still below, they're still below 200, but the, yeah. at least they're a step in the right direction. Oh, they're right? definitely a step in the right direction from death. Yes. And, and, and that's what I the, the reality is, is that it, that was the beginning of my healing journey mm -hmm. that night. Actually, I would probably say it began the night I was at USC and I essentially kind of said, I'm tired of doing what everybody else wants. I want my own journey. I think that really my whole life is. Anyways, um, I knew that was a pivotal moment because it had to do with me and God. Yeah. Like I, God, did you really reject me? Did you create a world in which I could reach a place where I could no longer be in relationship with you? That was death to me. It felt like death. Like I was, I was in, I was readying myself to go live in hell. Kind of like probably what Jesus was going through in the garden of Gethsemane. Totally. totally. Right? Yeah. I didn't exactly. sweat like blood. I, there were days when I probably felt like it. Yeah. Yeah. And I realized, sweating. yeah, I realized that that progression up towards love begins with one day at a time and i think now i realize those plant medicines they may increase the trajectory of those learnings from years to days so now we have ayahuasca ceremonies dmt ceremonies you've got uh psilocybin ceremonies peyote ceremonies Ayahuasca was talked about on um, Billions, which is a very large yeah. show on on yeah. on uh, and talking about invest in, in like like VC money going into these types of things. And well, that was the thing that I found in the research that I did is now when I was looking at legislation, now that Biden has announced that we're getting there, we're going to be there. All the pharmaceutical companies want to be the ones to sell the drugs because they have an infrastructure. Yeah, which will be interesting. Yeah. So. So what's your final thought after all of this? What where kind of where do you land? What do you feel? What what do you think? I think to summarize it, the research is still being done, but we're starting to get objective scientific results that show in clinical settings and in under the right circumstances, these psychedelics are doing amazing things. Mm -hmm. Go back to the 50s and 60s where it started. Aldous Huxley did mescaline and was able to see some amazing things and write Brave New World and yeah. the Doors of Perception, right? Um, the early uh, folks were doing great things. And I think we've come full circle. And I think that what we have to realize is that there are a lot of ways to heal our world. I mean, at the end of the day, Jonathan, how are we supposed, how can we as individuals inform ourselves, inform mm -hmm. our loved ones, and then build from this community to try to bring, um, 
this kind of consciousness together to realize that we're all in this together because right now it's a really dark you know divisive place right there's a lot mm -hmm. of stuff out there and i've got to even avoid getting on twitter so um if we can you know if we it's can, easy to dive into the cesspool it, it is and and it's easy to, to to take sides and instead of looking at it objectively from the outside and that's i think what the what these substances help us do they look at us and bridge us together especially mdma in terms of like how do we Very heal much. each other and and then and then turn this thing on because if we can get enough people meditating tapping into the source as sean brought up last week and and, and getting enough people to to be bought into this construct that there's something amazing waiting for us on the other side that doesn't involve screaming and yelling at each other um and and showing the love that everybody's entitled to um that here's the truth test here's the truth test and i've asked this question would you encourage because that's sort of the defining line like you can step back and go do what you want on your own time but then there's the parental role is like we steward children would you right. suggest in any situation that your children do this um if they were um gonna avoid suicide absolutely um yeah. i just heard a terrible story about a 13 year old a great point kid who just killed himself he was an amazing baseball player but he was chunky he was bullied um, he got the morning text from his, to his dad. I woke up, dad, I'm getting ready for school. He always sends a test text in the yeah. afternoon and he'd come home and he'd killed himself. And that is something that in my heart of hearts, um, talk about a, a way to break a family apart because there's the fear of what could I have done better. And if I had a situation where I, I, I knew that, a um, a, a child, or a really good friend were on the verge of suicide and um, unable to come out of it by themselves, highly recommend that even at, a, at, a, a, at an earlier age. Yep. I, I will say, um, I've thought about this question. Under the right supervision, absolutely. My, you know, I've had family members go through really severe depression. And you want, my goal is healing. And I, and, and I say all this, I ask you that question because I think there's sort of a cultural stigma, especially within our category and narrative of Christianity, is that this is a no-go. It's well, just it's demonic. No You're putting up yourself to the spiritual realm that could be exactly. demonically influencing. Right. And I call bullshit to that now. I do. I, that's where I've landed. I call bullshit to that because there's too much evidence that one, we can control the negative effects with the right set and setting. And two, it dramatically speeds up the healing process when done well. It really does. That's we just a fact. Atheists, yeah. There are atheists who uh, are almost deists or agnostics after taking these substances. Right. They've firmly said, I'm a scientist. But whatever that just did, I yeah. felt something so strong and powerful. Right. It connected me to the universe, a consciousness that's right. more than just physical things. There's something more going on. Yep. Yeah. So I so uh let let's let's end it there because I think this has been one of we've talked about this for what probably seven or eight years now. And I think this has been a really good summation of of our historical conversation. We've got to get to the point where we see this as a resource for healing. And if we can, I think that's what our 
our boomer generation parents missed is because they got to experience that. The 60s was about that freedom of love that came from that Woodstock experience. And then it just closed. And I think we are on the cusp of what happens because we saw what happened in San Francisco. The CIA created that. We are now at a point to recognize it has profound effects on human relations and our capacity to love our neighbor. And I find it impossible when Jesus says there is no law against love. Mm. If we do it right, we start with the medical part, open up the experimental under controlled frames, and let's create a really strong guardrail ever towards uh, recreational use, because I think that could be dangerous. But in the first two categories, I think it's absolutely mandatory. So. Fantastic. All right, brother. Um, it was a wonderful. I love these conversations with you. Thank you to our listeners. Uh, please comment, subscribe if you can. Send us a review. We'd love to hear how we're doing and, and if these conversations are valuable to the people who have started listening. We love you and much love. You want to say goodbye, Rich? Happy Good Friday. It truly yes. is Good Friday and uh, have a great uh, holiday weekend, uh, whatever you celebrate. Much love, everyone.